what I've learned about negotiation, which is my concentration, is that the more I concentrate on negotiation for myself and for my clients, the more performance we can get out of anything that we're working on. And I say anything, which is loose. That's not your ideal customer profile. And that is generally loosely speaking about anything that you are focused on and developing in your life. Negotiation will help you get there, help you get there faster and help you keep the right people in your corner versus mm -hmm. pissing everyone off or uh, even navigating internal conflict at work or working with your CEO or board, uh, having a conversation with your wife. It really does affect everything that you do. Uh, although not everyone thinks about negotiation as something that's constantly happening. They often think about it as, oh, something's gone wrong and I need to fix it. Or a big milestone moment's coming up and I need to now concentrate on what the negotiation looks like. Welcome everyone back to the what's now the fifth episode of the East Peak podcast, where we interview the go-to-market operators that make the startup world go round. Um, today, I have the privilege of interviewing Jacob Warwick. Uh, Jacob has uh, he runs a negotiation and executive consulting business, and he's been an entrepreneur uh, for over a decade. Uh, welcome, Jacob. Hey, glad to be here, Stuart. Cool. So um, to kick it off, uh, I'm probably butchering um, a little bit what you do, but tell us a little more about like how you like to think about how you help customers and, and what kind of support you offer executives and others. Sure. Well, if it makes you feel better, I butcher what I do all the time. You know how uh, I'd anticipate your audience is a bunch of go-to-market leaders. And when somebody asks you something like, how do you do go-to-market? The best go-to-market leaders always have the inclination to say, ah, it depends, right? It very much depends. And what I've learned about negotiation, which is my concentration, is that the more I concentrate on negotiation for myself and for my clients, the more performance we can get out of anything that we're working on. And I say anything, which is loose. That's not your ideal customer profile. And that is generally loosely speaking about anything that you are focused on and developing in your life, negotiation will help you get there, help you get there faster and help you keep the right people in your corner versus mm -hmm. pissing everyone off or uh, even navigating internal conflict at work or working with your CEO or board, uh, having a conversation with your wife. It really does affect everything that you do. Uh, although not everyone thinks about negotiation as something that's constantly happening, they often think about it as, oh, something's gone wrong and I need to fix it. Or a big milestone moment's coming up and I need to now concentrate on what the negotiation looks like. Makes sense. Um, yeah, so it's it's fractal. You could negotiate for, with your toddler all the way up to uh, the CEO of the next <laughs> company you want to work with. So I wouldn't say that I'm as successful with my, with my son <laughs> as I am with executives. Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, me neither. So, um, <laughs> uh, cool. So, um, who's kind of like the modal client you typically work with? Um, you know, we're talking about specificity a second ago and what are some like pretty common use cases that you help these people with? Yeah. So my typical client right now is typically in tech and usually in the ballpark of say 750,000 to $2 million a year in compensation. Mm -hmm. 
that tends to lean towards VP and C-suite depending on the size of the organization. Uh, if it's a Google, as an example, you're going to be closer to senior director VP. If you are at a smaller tech company that can still be VP, but it's probably going to be in the size of like a Zendesk or something in that mid-range there. Mm -hmm. And if it's a startup, you're going to be in C-suite in most cases. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm talking more Series C or higher in those mm -hmm. instances, though I do have some outlying work that I'm doing, uh, a media negotiation out in Dubai uh, for, uh, I guess, a soccer league. And so a big media buy in the, uh, let's say, nine-figure range, which is an interesting negotiation. I also have some clients in Hollywood working on some negotiations with celebrities and um, some CEO coaching here and there as well and some board of director work. Makes sense. You've got, um, yeah, pretty interesting portfolio and uh, not to mention some pretty minuscule uh, consulting agreements that you've helped me with. So to round it out. Yeah, I was going to say, you're my target, Stuart, always. <laughs> that said, I do go. work with a lot of revenue leaders and go-to-market leaders. Um, what's interesting is, uh, I, it, it, I hope this resonates with your audience and doesn't offend them, but it's usually the chief revenue officer who says they're really damn good at negotiation, except when you compare their compensation to what other C-suite is making, the CRO has the highest risk profile. And while it's nice that they make a lot, in some cases, they usually have the biggest variable. Whereas they'll, they'll take a job for a quarter million dollar base and another quarter million in performance. A product leader will take that same job for 350 guaranteed and 150 guaranteed in performance regardless. So they're almost guaranteed to always get 500. And uh, if there's any CROs on the call here and they're only in their role for 18 months, they're not getting their equity vests, they're not getting their performance bonuses. Oftentimes they don't even know if they're in a market to perform yet because they haven't done their due diligence or really negotiated well, yet they're the ones negotiating on behalf of the company most. So it's interesting when you look at it objectively, the, the, the folks in sales often don't make near as much as their counterparts, but they think they do. Interesting. Um yeah, I guess that's kind of like the old saying how the, the cobbler's uh, children, you know, don't wear any shoes kind of thing. So that's interesting. Yeah. Um, funny. Yeah, I, I, I think it is pretty wild. Like um, for non-technical people, the sales, sales in particular, and go to market more broadly is a path to, you know, upper middle class and beyond levels of wealth. But um, yeah, it is pretty wild. Just like kind of the variance and the risk that you take on on that side of the house compared to you know, product or similar roles at a big fang company and you just kind of chug along. Yeah. And oftentimes you, especially earlier career go-to-market leaders don't often have the autonomy to affect their own performance as they'd like to. Oftentimes it'll come down to, did they choose the right leader that they're working for or the right opportunity? And if they are in a position where they're churning over their job every 18 months, they've lost a lot of leverage and they're they sort of getting into a um, beggars can't be choosers type mode with their career. And you're taking a lot of gambles on startups. You know, a lot of startups don't make it. Most of them don't almost mm -hmm. entirely. Your equity is funny money. So there are some that get on a rocket ship and they're like, yeah, I worked for Slack in the early days. You're like everyone's trying to emulate that experience. Although it's very, very, Unlikely. It's 0.00006% or something like that. So there's a lot more failures out there than there are winners. And we always tend to focus on the winners and think that, well, why can't that be me? 
And it's not necessarily, you know, I, d- I certainly don't want to turn anyone off to taking their chances, but it's not a pragmatic way to approach your career when all of your eggs are in someone else's basket. So you want to choose the right leadership when you have the opportunity to. And it's best to find those leaders when you're already working, not when you're out of work and disgruntled or demoralized or or after three or four failed startups in a row, you start to look like the common denominator when sometimes it hasn't necessarily been your choice. Totally, especially in this market since SaaS began kicked off in fall of 21 where like a lot of those layoffs and rifts like, you know, historically, there's probably a good reason they got cut, but, you know, maybe not necessarily the case during this down cycle. So, yeah. Yeah, um, what's interesting is when you work for someone else, you, again, your eggs are in someone else's basket. You look at, you look at the past, companies lay off 5 to 10% of their staff around the holidays, naturally. Whether it's a big company or a small company, every good growing company is going to churn and slough off employees, some of which are... Um, really valuable employees. Some of them will be better suited at another company, right? But it's not uncommon. So none of this stuff should come as a surprise. If you're so confident in your ability that you don't think you're replaceable, you're in trouble. Like that is not, you have too much ego tied to it and you need to be mindful of, you know, how that may be perceived. Even as as I was growing up in go-to-market, which is what I did first uh, and grew to, VP of growth and chief growth officer positions, uh, again, in tech startups, I thought I was a tier talent every single day. I was like, man, I'm the shit. I work my ass off. I have these great results. And then after having been a CEO and understanding a little bit more of what I think a talent is today, I was maybe a C tier marketer at best through any of that. And it was frustrating because I was very much full of myself through that. And I'm not saying I'm not full of myself now, but at that particular period, I couldn't be more more further aligned from the truth and the reality of what I could actually bring to a to an organization. Totally. I mean, what's the saying? Uh, graveyards are full of uh, irreplaceable men, you know. So, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I I think there's um there's no substitute for knowing what good looks like, right? Um, you can learn from your losses and failures, but. It's like when you are around that 10x employee or an incredible leader and you just kind of keep raising the ceiling on what good looks like. And so it is really a privilege when you get to work with or around those kind of people. Yeah. And I wouldn't even say I know what good looks like anymore in terms of like the bar is constantly evolving and it's getting more and more innovative and competition in particularly in SaaS is higher than it's ever been before. And people's jobs are more replaceable than ever before. And things can be done. I mean, the whole whole premise of most SaaS was look at this, look how lucrative this business model is because we don't need a lot of people. Like it will recur naturally and grow and grow and grow. And we can do that with less and less staff. Like the whole model is designed that if you, you know, put a feather in your cap in this industry, your job is to replace yourself. Your job is to find ways to replace people. And let's not be uh, I guess uh, let's not forget that that's a reality that we face every day. So if you're doing your job well and the industry's doing your job well, you should be threatened every single day. Makes sense. Um, and yet, for some reason, DocuSign has uh, almost 8,000 employees still. So, you know, sometimes I wonder, and <laughs> that's where I say I don't know. Uh, there's a lot that I don't know, but there are things where I've made, I've been using this product for 10 years, and I swear to God, this thing has never changed. Yet they have a thousand engineers. What the hell are they doing? I just don't understand. But uh, yeah, that's, that'll be a little bit of my uh, naivety showing there. 
I, I, uh, I feel the same way. So cool. So going back a little bit, you know, you talked about coming out of marketing in the growth space, what inspired that pivot for you? And what kind of led you down this path uh, to specialize in like negotiation and, and helping executives? So one, I hated marketing, I hated working for solo software companies. So I liked on one hand, I liked it because it got me out of poverty into middle class and into wealth creation. And that really changed my life from being a, a kid that didn't go to college and could couldn't put 10 bucks in his Honda Civic to you know, driving a Beamer by the time I was 24, like that from an ego perspective and the wealth creation, like that was phenomenal. What happened was I do like growth. I like continuous learning. I like everything that go to market embodies the research of a new market, the understanding of challenges, the servicing that and to grow it in an efficient way. Like all of that is interesting to me, but I didn't like selling spreadsheets to millionaires. Like that, that felt like garbage and it didn't feel like I was doing anything valuable to the world. And it was very hard for me to find the connection of satisfaction there. But what was happening is my career was taking off and I was, was in director roles by the time I was 22, 23, uh, worked at a fortune 500 early. Other people looked to me and they said, how the hell did you do that? That doesn't make sense. We just graduated and we can't barely work at pizza hut kind of thing. Um, and it got me questioning like, why, why could I do it? But they couldn't yet right? What was the gap? So a lot of people just came and constantly asked me questions. How mm. did you do this? How did you position for that? Why did you do your resume like this? How did you do LinkedIn? Why are you doing networking like this? And so, you know, the smart thing to say would be, I listened to the market. The market said, Jacob, tell me how you did it. And so I started doing that and I started charging for that. And I built a business around that. And I scaled that to 25 employees and multi seven figures in revenue to teach people how to do that. And then I started to really kind of digest what was happening. I was just helping individuals go to market with their career. It's like, Stuart, you're the product, right? You're the product we're looking for. If you're looking for a job, we're looking for your ideal profile. We're interviewing them. We're doing some market research on them. We're marketing your product in a certain way. We're seeing how that resonates with that audience. And we're seeing what their willingness to pay is for it. Right? It's not that complicated. We just don't like to think of ourselves as a product because it sounds pretty icky. But go-to-market leaders, if they applied their go-to-market skills to themselves, can just say like, hey, I'm going to target a million-dollar position. What does that product look like? What does the buyer look like for buying that? And then you start to build the breadcrumbs of what you need to learn or who you need to connect with or the people you need to associate yourself with. So the big shift for me was learning go-to-market from a company who really put a lot of damn pressure on you to do it to now doing it for others. And the big freedom moment from an entrepreneurial perspective is not having all my eggs in someone else's basket. If I lose a client, I still make my mortgage. I can still afford to be in the city. I can still afford to do what I want to do. So it helped me spread and diversify my risk. And still, it took a long time to recoup what I was making in Silicon Valley through an entrepreneurial route to get there and then multiply it. But the path was much more rewarding. Makes sense. Thanks for sharing that. That kind of reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you've read... Anti-fragile by Nassim Taleb, but he talks about the um, how precarious a lot of high earners are, where they have it all in basket like that, versus just the taxi driver. Like if he doesn't want to get a fare, he just right. passes that person, gets someone they want. So there's uh, a lot to be said for that kind of liberation. Yeah, and that's that book is on my list. I've watched some things on anti-fragile before because and I think you've been hounding me to read it too. Um, I do have a problem with too much content consumption 
because it's very easy to consume a lot of content, not execute on it or not mm-hmm. live it in the real world. So what I found is when I start reading some books on business, I'm finding new ways to talk about things I've already sort of discovered. So when you're, you're sharing anti-fragile principles, I'm like, oh yeah, that I took on that mentality this time. And I started, mm-hmm. I found that some of those things I found on my own and it's very validating to see them in bestsellers and, you know, big influential things. But, um, I've always been one to kind of skip the reading and just go straight to work. And then I also know, like, I'm not saying reading's bad and I'm not saying college is bad. I didn't go to college. I just went straight to work. I just, I'm really a, like, go out and try it, fail, learn, and, mm-hmm. and almost embody what they say we're supposed to be doing in Silicon Valley. Right. Um, so yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but no, I I'm not read that. <laughs> I mean, I, I've seen people that are maybe like worse at this um, than me even, but I've definitely fallen into the trap of you're like, okay, keep learning, keep reading, listen to podcasts that at some point, like, you know, you just have to dive in and like learn from doing it like tacitly instead of having it be like an abstract concept. So I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. I had a, a sticky note that said create instead of consume, which is, uh, I picked this up. I, th- I want to say it was from an influencer or a creator and you can consume all the creator's content that you want, but you're never making a name for yourself unless you're creating. That's right. And there's a big fear of creating because you will be exposed as being an amateur early and you do sound, you know, oftentimes the perception you get as a creator is very low, but you have to learn from that and you have to get your ass kicked in the comments and you have to have people tear you down and you have to grow comfortable with that if you ever intend to grow. Same with negotiations important too. You you have to put yourself in increasingly more stressful situations to start to understand how to navigate a solution to get you more of what you're looking for. Totally makes sense. Um, cool. So so maybe uh, in that line, taking it back to specifics then, um, what are, you know, when you work with these executives and whomever else, like what are maybe some of the most common like failure modes you see? Um, when you're working with these leaders, you know, conducting negotiations for a new role or raise or things like that. I think the biggest failure mode is that they assume they know what the boundaries are and they assume they know what the drivers of everyone around them are. And for leaders, this may be, um, let's say you have an IC on your team and they're really damn good at what they do. You assume they want to be a leader. You assume they want to make more money. You assume these things. And so you put them into a leadership position and your entire team falls apart, right? Maybe you should have just compensated your ICs better and motivated them doing the work that they love. Um, that's one example. Um, compensation, they, it's easier now than ever to understand what everyone around you makes, roughly. There's a lot of objective criteria. But if you negotiate for what's objectively out there, you're going to be average at best, right? You're never going to be the outlier that found a way to do, you know, double what the, what the criteria was for position. Like just because 90% of the roles pay roughly the same doesn't mean you can't be in the 10% that doesn't. And so we often see these rules around us and we abide by these rules. I mean, from a very early stage in our society, we're told to listen to someone else's rules. This is the rules of how to behave. This is how it works. You stop at a stop sign when there's no cops because you've learned to stop at stop signs, right? And what's interesting is the rules don't apply in business. And I figured this out at a young age, having not gone to college, 
I've had three or four full-time positions that have required college educations and master's degrees. But I got the job anyway. But it was required. What does the word required mean? Or I just got a job offer at $70,000 a year, and when I finished the negotiation, I was at a quarter million a year. It went from a manager to a VP position. It took four months. There was a range for the role. I broke the range, right? Is that real authority or not? So the Chris Voss embodies this the best because he has a very simple quip that is never be so sure of what you're worth that you wouldn't accept more. So like it's, it. it's the same thing. You go into a negotiation and they say, Stuart, how much money do you want? And you say, ha, $250,000. And you're laughing because the last job, you only made 200 And you're like, ha, I'm going to raise the bar 50000 And they go, shit, all right. I guess we can work within that. And then they're like, man, I had this roll scope for three fifty. This is great. Or what could be worse is they don't think you know your worth. And so you're too junior for them now. Mm-hmm. You've shot yourself in the foot. Mm-hmm. Or... You know, they really only had 200. They could go up to 250, but you were so aggressive about it that they don't even want to move forward and you lose the opportunity then too. Mm-hmm. It's like you were so sure that 250 was your number that if somebody offered you or was going to offer you a 500, you never created the opportunity to even explore what that value was like. And you've now eviscerated a quarter million dollars in value. And my job is to help capture whatever value is on top of it that you don't, may not know exists. I give a quick story to the, about this. I had a client this year, took about five months in a negotiation, and they had said, I, I asked them, how much money do you want to make? And they said, look, I'm looking for $250,000 as a, as a salary here. I said, okay, um, you know, tell me more about that. And he said, well, that's what I made before. That's kind of in the ballpark. And I said, cool. Now we're not going to say anything about that. He said, what do you mean? You know, he was being pressured from a recruiter to give his salary number, and he wouldn't share it. Uh, we worked on ways to kind of pivot that back and forth so he wouldn't go into that. And they pressured him and pressured him, but he still worked through the system and still was deflective. And eventually we got to an offer stage. And their initial offer was like 425000 all in. And so there's almost 200000 in value created right there. And then through our negotiation, we ended in the 600s after that. And so he was so sure, like, I just want two fifty. That we got up to 600 just by telling him to keep his damn mouth shut. And so when, he, when somebody says, I want 250000 I say, are you sure? Why? And one of the reasons I learned this was I'm, I'm pretty bad with numbers, which is probably not what you want to hear from a negotiation person. Um, but when I'm bad with numbers, I don't know the difference between 150000 and 250000 or three. I don't really have this like personal relationship with money as so many people do. Like when somebody says, you know, if they think they're worth 250 and I say, why not 280? They're like, oh shit, 30,000 is a big difference. And I'm thinking like after taxes and after monthly, like it's maybe like 500 extra dollars a month or like maybe a thousand extra a month. So at best you could have two fancy dinners and a car payment that you're trading all of this for that. Or it's just a number on a spreadsheet difference. So I just don't have this emotional connection with money. And I think that helps me be more objective from a negotiation standpoint for my clients. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely been uh, guilty of that kind of pre-negotiation before myself. So, um, yeah. It's weird. It's borderline illegal, but it's not. So you can't say, hey, Stuart, how much money do you make? 
but you can say how much money do you want to make. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. that's the difference of the legal line. They can't mm-hmm. copy what you did before and just increase it a little bit. That's illegal. So they just skirt it by adding two words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think it's kind of a fool's errand uh, to like, I, so I've read some studies that actually say like in New York and San Francisco where pay transparency in Colorado has been this like hot it's topic. Worse. It's actually made it worse. Yeah. I think it makes it worse. And <laughs> yeah. I've, I found myself in hot water on LinkedIn by saying it's bullshit. And I think it hurts women and minorities worse, mm-hmm. even though they say it's the alternative. Because, like, again, we, we, everybody abides by rules. They take that as authority. Mm-hmm. So they choose to apply or not apply or if it's within range. And nobody tries to break that for the most part. I'm saying statistically. Mm-hmm. And in, they're actually eliminating good talent from applying because they're like, oh, I won't work for that little. And you're also eliminating certain talent that doesn't think they're worth that much either that could be. So it's like this big mental block that and I also agree with the point that, hey, you want to know that you're not getting into a role where at the end of the day they offer you 25000 a year, which, you know, we've been there. But at least you, you went through the practice of creating that opportunity. You know, I think there was a story in, have you read Influence by Robert Cialdini? It's sitting on my bookshelf, but uh, yeah, I need to that's dig into one, it. That is probably the number one book I'd recommend to anybody because the mm-hmm. influence and the soft skills of persuasion is more important to accelerate your career than any functional thing you ever study. I don't care if you're the best damn go-to-market lead in, leader in the world. If you don't know how to apply the principles in that book, you will not go very far. So that's that's my number one recommendation. But there was a story, I think it was in this, or maybe it was, it was something I saw on YouTube, but there was a... Uh, on the New Jersey Turnpike, as you enter Delaware, you know how there's those big overpass signs that say, welcome to Delaware, right? Or welcome to the state. Mm-hmm. Somebody in cardboard or like big poster board with this like grotesque Sharpie just wrote Delaware closed and they put it on the sign, right? Now, some people just drove straight through on the turnpike. Like there's literally no other indication except a big sign that says Delaware closed and this crude, obviously cartoonish thing. Some people stopped on the side of the road. Hey, what's going on with Delaware? Why is Delaware closed? Like people are like, they, they take this false authority and see it as true. Like we are that easily influenced by things. Like if I just threw a stop sign up in the middle of the road, many people would stop. It doesn't have to be an official stop sign. It might not even need to be red and octagon. I could just change it. I could just, people pay attention to signs. They're told what to do. The brain is such a power hungry tool that it wants to be told what to do so it can have less decision fatigue. And that's something we constantly need to battle, especially in high stakes roles. Makes sense. Um, Okay. So yeah, we talked about some, let's see, common failure modes with leaders and stuff like that. Um, so like, I know that you, uh, you know, support people, uh, looking for new roles or even promotions, but like, tell us a little bit more about like how you help people that are maybe uh, a couple steps left in the timeline on getting ready, uh, to doing that. Cause that's something I found really interesting too, where you're, you're thinking a little farther forward than just this immediate job search. Yeah. So there's, there's two kinds of situations. There's folks that are more actively looking, but still have a job. And there are those that are more passively looking that still have a job. Um, I think it's interesting for those that have six to 12 month timelines, because 
what we work on is how to set up the success modes, how to like create more of those opportunities, um, similar to creating pipeline. If you're in, you know, probably some of your audience knows how to create pipeline, demand generation, um, how to work with your network and how to set things into motion to increase the likelihood of getting there. Um, we spend more time focusing on the habits that are necessary for success rather than the activities and making sure that we're measuring the right KPIs for yourself. We'll use a lot of buzzwords here, but a lot of folks when they're like, Hey, I want to be a VP. They don't measure anything for success. They just, they're like, I'm either a VP or I'm not, or they may get a little more into the weeds and say, I'm going to, I'm going to measure how many interviews I have for VP or whatever. So we, we set up the right performance indicators to know that they're building towards that success by creating habits. Um, sometimes let's say if it's internal conflict or you're trying to work on a promotion at a larger company. Um, I have one right now that I'm working on, let's say in a tool you use every day. I'll just, I'll just share that, uh, an executive in a tool you use every day and they are working on an internal promotion through some conflict that happened. And, we made ourselves the secession plan. We've partnered with the executive leader. We've helped push the executive leader forward and support them and increase mandate. We've also negotiated ways to support other teams cross-functionally and what that would look like. And now I've carved a path for promotion while still keeping the opportunity at another firm or like another organization, still keeping that open. So we're creating opportunities for that while also creating opportunity to grow internally. And so I guess for me, what that looks like on a day-to-day, Stuart, you might know a little bit of this. Sometimes I just get a phone call out of the blue. I have a one-on-one with my boss. Let's game plan it. Mm-hmm. Then my client will perform, and then we debrief after on how it went and kind of what the greater strategic vision is for that. So there's a couple different flows of how that can look. It's very, it's less leadership coaching and more consulting and sparring mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the trenches with somebody that can mirror and understand the situation and understands what some of the success points look like up to C-suite and beyond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, not not that I've necessarily gotten to such withering heights in my personal career, but you know, definitely there are fewer and fewer people the higher you get up, obviously. And you know, they say that being a CEO is like the loneliest job in the world. Like, I think actually with much more modest negotiations with you and I, like one of the things I've found the most valuable is just having someone to like workshop this stuff with, you know, you might have people in your network, but at some point, like you need like a partner to think through some of these things and like pressure test some of your presumptions and stuff like that. And that's pretty hard to come by otherwise. So um, I think that's been most valuable for me. It's difficult to build out an advisory board of folks that are pushing you forward that aren't biased or incentive incentivized by kind of the wrong parts of your success. Typically what happens is, People surround themselves with more of the same. So you go join uh, a community, like let's say a RevOps community. You surround yourself with other RevOps folks and all you learn is stuff about RevOps. Like it's very isolating. And what you need to be doing is doing more, uh, surrounding yourself. Like you say, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Like you need to surround yourself with people that will kick your ass every day and actually still want to spend time with you. Because... Mentors are hard to come by and they often won't get anything out of helping you. 
So you can't just go find a CEO and say, Hey, mentor me. Like they're not getting anything. You have to find situations to provide that value and, and continually work to increase the bar for yourself. And if you're busy holding down your job, which most of these jobs are hard enough in their own to just maintain without getting fired with how crazy the market is, like you don't have time to do that. And so I can at least provide that particular piece. And then I think one of the things that I'm more valuable with is introducing the people that can actually support you through that too. Because I have worked with so many folks to help just make a connection here. Oh, you want to talk to a CRO? Which one? What kind of background do you want? Here's what they would be interested in. Make sure you lead with this and help coach through the stories and then manage the networking accordingly. Makes sense. Um, sounds really valuable. So, um, cool. So, um, as we kind of pivot a little closer to close here, you know, I know you mentioned uh, Cialdini's book, Influence. Um, for those of whom that are interested in like becoming better negotiators, at least by themselves, like, are there any other assets or uh, people you'd recommend they check out more? Yeah, so like everyone's go-to is getting to yes. And I would not recommend that as your first bet. I think that's mm -hmm. I think it's fundamental, but I also this is hard cuz I'm challenging like three Harvard professors and I'm going to sound like an asshole. Mm -hmm. It's not often realistic. In that there's a lot, it gets, yes, there's about win-win situations, but you don't often, it doesn't help you with like cultural differences. It doesn't help you with um, like crazy demands internally at Silicon Valley where you're dealing with bro culture or some just weird dynamics that is pretty unique to Silicon Valley. It, it also feels very glass half full all the time, like assuming everyone has the best intentions and that's just not always the case. The one I would recommend the most is you can negotiate anything. Mm. which is written in the eighties, I think, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, before someone rails me in the comments, like it is an old white dude and he says some dumb shit. So just be mindful about that. Um, but I really have a propensity to focus on really old books cause they simplify things in, you know, they'll talk about negotiating apples to apples and oranges to apples or whatever versus, um, reading about how Facebook grew to some behemoth and then acquired this. And like, so it's, it, the language is easier to digest and understand. And I think the principles are easier to follow and stay top of mind. Like they talk about negotiating a refrigerator cost between like $200 and $150 or something. And in the, the mindset behind the drivers there, it's more practical through a storytelling, um, getting to yes. And those types of books are more academic it's like, I, I always prefer practical to academic. Makes sense. I know um, Chris Voss and his book was not particularly flattering on the getting the yes crew either. So you're in good well, company. And well, I'm not particularly fond of Chris Voss's book either, mm. though it is, is, it is good. I'm not saying it's not good. And I just, there's a little shock and awe of a hostage negotiation, having a gun to your head kind of thing, which is like, Oh shit. Like that's not Silicon Valley in most contexts. So again, that his is very, um, appealing in it. It'll, it'll get eyeballs and it'll get clicks. And he's obviously a genius when it comes to this stuff. Um, but how much of that is practical? Like at the amount of times I've seen somebody say, is that ridiculous? Because he, he has a no-oriented questions checklist, and, and so he says, like, oh, is this a ridiculous idea? The amount of people saying that to me, I'm like, okay, you're trying to Chris Voss me. I get it, right? 
Um, people don't usually say that. I don't how know. are you? How do you expect me to accept that, Jacob? How do you expect me to accept that? Now, I'm not. I, the no-oriented questions are good, but don't copy Chris Voss one for one when he's so popular. <laughs> like somebody's going to see through you, right? So totally. I would I'd argue that it needs to come across more casual. And I'm a I'm a bigger fan, even with high-profile executives, of using ignorance as a strength in a lot of ways, instead of being so polished and so dialed in and so academic and so like prescriptive, you're like, what's the Batna? What's the Zopa? What's the whatever? Like you're thinking like, that's not how people think, right? It's fine from an academic level to study what's happening. But when you're like face to face with someone, what is that? Like you, uh, is it Muhammad Ali or Tyson or something like you, everyone can talk about what it's like to get punched in the face until you get punched in the face. <laughs> Right? Everyone's got a plan until they're punched in the face. Yeah, and then all yeah. of a sudden it's gone, right? I mean, that right. the reality is it needs to be casual and confident and authentic to yourself. And I like using ignorance as strength because it helps someone put their guards down. You'll be more vulnerable and authentic and more open to hearing the right thing versus am I maximizing every little ounce of the Zopa right now, right? Like I don't ever even usually use those terms. Like I do agree with like understanding alternatives and creating value with alternatives and increasing leverage and understanding the more prescriptive approaches, but that's not how we make it practical for someone else. Totally. Um, okay, great. So, um, let's see here. What, uh, I think we kind of touched on some things that you'd uh, recommend people shy away from, but what's, um, like common advice, particularly in negotiation that you generally find to be bad advice. Whew. That's a good one. Common, common advice that I'd see as bad advice. You might have stumped me on that one. What is your right. What is your go to common advice? Like, what What is something that you've heard hmm. that you practice? You know, I think in negotiation, it'd probably be something along, I'm just trying to think about what might not be great. It's, it's probably using whatever is cool or du jour of the moment. So like in, in go to market, like you, you see these trends, right? So it's like everyone's really gotten on the medic med pick command and message bandwagon. And they're talking yeah. about, you know, uh, you know, positive business outcomes and all these things. And you're just an enterprise you know, you're, you're a recipient, uh, a prospect and you're like, what the hell are you talking about? I, I just want to actually like understand your yeah, product context. Yeah. I mean, yeah. One of the things that's like Chris Voss's solution is an example, like never compromise or never split the difference. Like the reality is you're not always negotiating with seasoned negotiators. Mm -hmm. You typically aren't. In fact, you're dealing with everyday people that you need to work with every day. And so Never splitting the difference, never comp. I agree that don't just cut something down the middle and call it fair. Like that's silly. Um, mm -hmm. But you have to work with these people every day. Typically, when you're negotiating, most common situations you're negotiating with people that you spend time with, not in an ultimatum type way. So sometimes you do need to split the difference. Sometimes you need to do a handshake agreement in good faith, right? Sometimes you don't need to get it in writing. Sometimes all you need to do is plant the seed and negotiate later. So not every 
conversation you can have needs to be maximum level effectiveness or assertiveness, especially if you're not very good at negotiating yet. So typically with my clients, I'll say, here's the, the softball approach that you will or can look weak, but I understand that's what's going to be most comfortable with you. Here's the medium approach. Here's the most assertive approach. This is really important. Like when we're doing a bidding war, do you really want to go back and forth five or six times to maximize your value and piss off every single person in your network? Right? Like, yes, that is how to maximize value for now. Like, don't, don't cut off your nose to spite your face kind of thing or whatever that, that saying is, mm -hmm. because there's some long-term wins and sometimes you need to know when to pack it in. Totally. Um, I, I'm definitely guilty of being on the, the wimpy side of that spectrum. So yeah, we talked about that. <laughs> All right. Well, um, two, two questions to wrap up here. So, um, you know, what, uh, what role does disc golf, uh, play in your, uh, your negotiation skills and development? Yeah. So as you see many, a, many a discs back here, uh, basically disc golf plays an important role in reminding me that I'm a dirt bag and that I'm not a polished regular golfer with thousand dollar clubs or whatever. I'm, I'm a walk out in the dirt I get dirty, throw stuff in trees and, you know, it just kind of reminds me of where I come from. And it reminds me that most of the negotiations that I do with clients are first world problems. And it's a great sandbox to play in. And even the highest risk situations are a learning experience because look, like at the end of the day, you know, we're squabbling over sometimes millions and millions of dollars, which is such a privileged position to be in. Like, I remember the days when I would overdraft on McChickens at McDonald's and I couldn't put money in my gas tank and really struggled to even survive day to day. Um, was This was like, I remember like 2008 financial collapse times, like couldn't find a job for the life of me. Um, right out of high school, no skills, no college, like and now we're negotiating with CEOs of Fortune 500 companies and big million dollar deals. And we did a uh, some negotiations with, let's just say Marvel characters. I won't use any names, but folks that are in the Marvel movies, we're doing those. Um, I mean, disc golf is a reminder to me of my heritage and my roots and that like with very little in my life, except for little Frisbees in the woods and fresh air, like I'm happy. Simple man who likes to get out there and slap some chains. Slapping some chains. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Jacob, it's been a pleasure. Um, for those of whom that uh, would like to get in touch with you or learn more, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Hey, LinkedIn's fine. I imagine you're already watching this on LinkedIn, so just pop into the search tab there uh, or bug you for it. That's even better. There we go. Well, hit me up. Uh, hit up Jacob. His business is called Think Warwick or find him on LinkedIn. And uh, Jacob, thanks for the time. Thanks, Stuart.